Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report, the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law issues. I'm Brian Cardile. It was an eventful week in the Ninth Circuit. The court saw nominated Oregon Assistant U.S. Attorney Ryan Bounds to fill Dermot O'Scanlan's vacant Portland posting, and as O'Scanlan has moved to senior status, Bounds' colleague, James Zadian, chairs the Ninth Circuit Appellate Lawyers' Representatives and will join us to talk about his experiences with Bounds, what qualities the federal prosecutor would bring to the appellate bench, and about the contentious confirmation battle that yet awaits for Bounds as Oregon's Democratic senators seem poised to try to wield a home state veto following a Senate norm of fairly long-standing but one that might not survive in a Republican-held chamber considering President Trump's judicial nominees. Before hearing from Mr. Zadian, though, let's get into our opening briefs. The jurisprudence of insider trading has been in some ferment the past few years since the Second Circuit, which encompasses the epicenter of insider trading prosecutions, the Southern District of New York, decided the case U.S. v. Newman, and perhaps frustrated by government prosecutions of traders only tenuously linked to the original sources of insider tips, seemed to augment the necessary showing for insider trader convictions. But soon thereafter, a different U.S. Supreme Court insider trading case essentially undid part of the new Newman Doctrine. And now the Second Circuit, in a 2-1 decision at the end of August, has hacked away the rest of Newman's jurisprudential outgrowth, making life easier for government prosecutors and expanding the scope of insider trading criminal liability, perhaps as wide as it's ever been. Here to discuss that ruling is Peter Henning, a professor at Wayne State Law School and a former enforcement attorney with both the SEC and the Department of Justice. He also chronicles the vagaries of white-collar crime for the New York Times. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. You wrote for the New York Times that a recent Second Circuit opinion down at the end of August has the potential to significantly expand the scope of of, uh, insider trading criminal liability. Um, And you wrote that that the ruling does that by sort of papering over a a previous ruling also from the Second Circuit from a couple years back, the case of U.S. versus Newman, which at the time seemed to make it more difficult for prosecutors to to prove insider trading cases. Uh, And we'll get into just the dynamics of how those two cases uh, work and how this latest one might uh, render Newman kind of a dead letter. But maybe before we do, we could set the context that existed prior to that U.S. v. Newman case. Just what prior to that uh, the government had to show to prove an insider trading case. This might sound sort of rubbish to any securities law folks listening, but it's not just as simple as saying an insider gave some privileged non-public information to someone who who wouldn't know it, and that person traded on earth. There's kind of more to it than that. Well, there's much more to it. Certainly, the, the SEC and the Justice Department would love a rule that says if you have inside information, you can't trade on it. But as it was developed by the Supreme Court, um, in order to prove insider trading, you have to show that the person who traded uh, did so in breach of a fiduciary duty or what the court called uh, an other duty of trust and confidence. What came out after that decision, which was in 1980, um, the case was called Chiarella versus United States. About three years later was a case called Dirks versus United States, and that dealt with uh, something that's called tipping where it isn't so much that I trade, but I give you the information, and then you trade and profit on it. And what the court said is that the government has to show that the tipper received a benefit from the tippee. And in describing the benefit, you know, the easy case is the bag of money. And so we saw that in the 1980s, say, with Ivan Boski. Uh, but another way to prove it is that if it was a gift, And so if a gift is given to family or friends, 
that can be enough of a benefit. There's the, the warm feeling you get from giving any gifts. That can be enough to show insider trading. So that was the state of the law up until late 2014, that if the government could show some form of friendship, some type of gift, then that would be enough for one of these tipping-type cases. And that seemed to be the more dominant form of insider trading that was taking place, especially with uh, hedge funds, the kind of cases we saw with Raj Rajaratnam, a billionaire hedge fund manager, that these were tipping cases. So is that sort of an, an either-or element there, that either the, the tipper receives something in return for the tip, or you're talking about a situation where he's giving it to a, a friend or a relative? Right. If, if it is a tipping case, there are any number of cases where people trade on information sure. that they received, and there you don't have to worry about tipping. But if, if you can trace the information from the trader to a source, then the, the Dirks case required that you show some kind of benefit. Indeed, the Supreme Court in the Dirks case talked about a quid pro quo. Um, the easiest quid pro quo, of course, is uh, money, property, something like that. But also the court said in a family or friend situation, it, it could be enough. So you saw cases in which the government pursued um, old high school friends. Uh, there was a string of cases involving golfing buddies who were trading the information in the locker room. Um, the fact of the friendship was enough to establish the benefit, and therefore you could be uh, held liable if the government could show that you got inside information and then traded on it. As I understand it, the, this law is, is fairly judge-made. There's not a whole lot describing exactly what insider training is in the relevant statutes. What, what is sort of the policy reason behind that sort of showing requiring there be some benefit flowing to the, the tipper in, in these kind of cases, or that it resembles a gift of some kind? You're right that um, insider trading is based on the anti-fraud provisions of the federal securities laws, and uh, that's Section 10B and then Rule 10B-5. And all that Rule 10B-5 says is that it's illegal to engage in a scheme or artifice to defraud while trading securities. Insider trading uh, was first developed in the 1960s. Um, the concern was that, and this was in the Supreme Court, Justice Powell, who wrote the Chiarella and Dirks decision, he was concerned that the law was too broad and would end up discouraging stock market analysts from going in and trying to figure out what was going on at companies. And if they were able to determine what was going on inside, they might be fearful that they had confidential information. So the reason why the rule was written this way to require this breach of a duty was to make sure that it really was only getting the bad guys and not the people who are just trying to figure out what's going on inside of a company. It's ended up taking uh, insider trading law in the U.S. in some rather interesting directions, one of which is what relationship does the trader have to have to the source of the information and how close is the relationship? Normally you don't think, you know, how good friends are we so that you can prove insider trading, but that it became... Uh, and is still today uh, an important issue in the cases. U.S. v. Newman, the case we referenced from 2014, specifically speaks to, to that question. What did it have to say about the nature of the relationship between a, a tipper and a tippy, and how did it uh, how did it sort of change the the jurisprudence that it had as it had existed before the case? Well, the Newman case involved two uh, 
hedge fund managers, and they were uh, remote tippies. It, it wasn't that they dealt directly with the source. Instead, it got passed through a couple of other people before it got to them. And so in reviewing the convictions in that case, the uh, Second Circuit in Manhattan said that in order to show this kind of friend's benefit, because no money or anything of value never passed to the sources of the information, the tippers. So what the Second Circuit said is uh, that in order to establish that benefit, um, the you had to show something uh, that was close to pecuniary value, something of a real tangible benefit, and then the relationship had to be uh, a meaningfully close personal relationship. And, of course, that was missing in the Newman case. The, uh, the original uh, tipper and tippee had gone to school together. They'd been in, gotten MBAs together. And in one of the other situations, they knew each other through their church. And what the Second Circuit said is, look, that's just not close enough. You have to have a close personal relationship if we're talking about friends. They didn't have to deal with family. So that looked like it was going to create a fairly significant roadblock for government's efforts to prosecute insider trading cases. At the time, do you recall, were prosecutors of the mind that that was kind of a, a deviation in what the law had been, that that made it sort of un, unduly hard? Uh, did, it, did it seem like it was the sort of thing that might end up being, as perhaps it turned out, kind of an outlier in the, the jurisprudential history of uh, securities prosecutions? Well, certainly there was uh, concern expressed in New York. Preet Bharara, who was the United States attorney at the time, said that this decision was going to allow uh, corporate executives to lavish inside information on others could then freely trade. I think that was certainly an overestimation of Newman's impact, but it was going to make life more difficult for the Justice Department and the SEC because now they couldn't just rely on a generalized description of the relationship. They were going to have to dig in and shift how close these people were. And of course, that gives the defense an avenue saying, you know, we weren't really that close. I didn't really expect the person to trade on it. It could raise, in a criminal case, a reasonable doubt. Um, and certainly after the Newman case, the defendants who had pleaded guilty um, and uh, their convictions, their plea deals were overturned, the cases against them dismissed. And there were some other cases. There was a uh, high-level uh, trader at SAC Capital Advisors, Steve Cohen's firm, and his conviction was overturned. The United States Attorney's Office said, we can't prove the case against him. So it did have an impact, and it looked like it was going to make life more difficult because once you have one decision, they can take on a momentum and could have spread across the country. And I think that was the real concern with uh, federal prosecutors and the SEC. Now, that momentum is pretty quickly slowed by by case about a year later, U.S. v. Um, Salmon, one that came up through the, the Ninth Circuit, again, sort of reckoning with the same sorts of questions that Newman did. Um, could you talk about the, the Ninth Circuit? Because they didn't really go along with the law that the Second Circuit laid out, nor do, you know, do they have to. Obviously, they're a different circuit. Um, but did they acknowledge that the Second Circuit 
was requiring something different than, than they were comfortable requiring. And also, I, I know there was actually a Second Circuit district judge that, that wrote that Ninth Circuit opinion, right? Yeah, that's correct. The Salmon case it was, like Newman, it was a tipping case, although here you had uh, close family members. You had two brothers, one of whom worked for an investment bank, and he gave information to his brother, who in turn gave it to um, a future brother-in-law. Um, yeah, one of the brothers was getting married, and so this was his future wife's uh, brother. And he got it and made about a million and a half dollars off it. So uh, unlike friends, here you had a fairly close family relationship. Um, after Newman came out, uh, this Salmon case was appealed to the Ninth Circuit out in California, and of all things, you had uh, Judge Jed Rakoff from Manhattan, a district judge there, who'd presided over some very high-profile insider trading cases. Uh, he was sitting out there, it's called by designation, so he happened to sit on the panel, and it got assigned Salmon, and he probably has, uh, among federal judges, close to the most experience in insider trading cases before he went on the bench and then afterwards. So he wrote the opinion in Salmon, and the defendants uh, specifically, or the defendants, uh, specifically raised uh, the Newman decision, saying you can't show any pecuniary benefit being given, and hey, I'm not a brother, I'm just a future brother-in-law, it's not enough. And the Ninth Circuit opinion written by Judge Rakoff said, Newman went too far. Uh, Newman is not consistent with dirt, that friendship or family can be enough for the benefit. And so the Ninth Circuit specifically rejected the Newman case, at least that part of it, saying that it had to be a tangible benefit and had to be a meaningfully close personal relationship. And, and then the, the Supreme Court uh, affirmed it unanimously, right? Did, what, what was their input on to what the Second Circuit had done, and did they also say that it had gone further than, than Dirk sanctioned? Uh, certainly, that the Supreme Court uh, granted cert in Solomon. It, it didn't grant cert in the Newman case. The Solicitor General tried to get the court to review the Newman decision, and the court said no. And then a couple months later, granted cert in Solomon. It, that, that turned out to be a much better case for prosecutors, a much easier case. And so when the Supreme Court uh, affirmed the convictions in a unanimous opinion, Justice Alito wrote it. And it, it's an unremarkable opinion in the sense that Justice Alito says, Dirt controls this case, therefore it, it's not a particularly difficult one. But the, the justices did take a swipe at Newman by saying that the tangible benefit requirement that the Newman court had said was required for the the benefit, the quid pro quo, they said that went too far. And so they specifically rejected that and said, you know, as long as you can show a, uh, a personal relationship here, friendship or family, that that can be enough, and that's consistent with dirt. So it eliminated at least part of the troublesome part of the uh, Newman decision. didn't eliminate all of it because the court didn't specifically address the meaningfully close personal relationship requirement. It's unclear after Solomon whether that part of Newman might still exist. So that that is the, the lingering question that still remained after the U.S. v. Solomon decision. And so it, it, is this case, the U.S. v. Martoma case, um, kind of the first opportunity for, for courts to, to address what impact Solomon had or whether that portion of Newman 
the uh, the meaningfully close relationship, whether that still um, is, is, is good law? That's right. In fact, uh, the Martoma case was argued uh, before the Supreme Court issued its decision in Solomon, and then after Solomon came out, the, the Second Circuit uh, asked for argument as to whether the meaningfully close personal relationship requirement or test of Newman, whether that still applied. And the defendant, of course, argued that it did apply. There was not this personal relationship. Martoma uh, was worked for SAC Capital Advisors against Steve Cohen's firm um, and had gotten information from a doctor about a, a drug test for a new medication that would treat Alzheimer's. And it turns out he got information that uh, the drug test was not going to be successful. Uh, Stack Capital Advisors sold out its position in the drug company stocks and even shorted the shares. This resulted in uh, gains and losses avoided of over $250 million. So this was really this the, the biggest uh, dollar figure insider trading case. The defendant said, look, I, you know, we hired the doctor at $1,000 an hour to talk to us, but I had no personal relationship with him. Therefore, I should get a new trial where the government has to show a meaningfully close personal relationship. Well, Second Circuit didn't go along. This is a, a 2-1 opinion. What was the reasoning of the majority as to, to why that portion of Newman didn't need, need to be followed? Because as, as you say in the U.S. versus Salman case, it wasn't really – at issue because there was a fairly close relationship there. Um, so the U.S. Supreme Court hadn't specifically said that portion of Newman wasn't good law, the requirement that there's a close relationship. What did the, the majority say? Well, the majority said the Supreme Court got rid of everything from Newman <laughs> with regard to both the tangible benefit and the meaningfully close personal relationship. So the, the two judges in the majority in the Martoma case said that what the Supreme Court requires after Solomon is that in a tipping case, you have to show that the information is given with an expectation that the recipient will trade on it, and that by giving the information, it is like giving a gift. And the analogy they used was if someone comes into his building uh, in New York, and rather than giving the doorman a Christmas present or a holiday present, you give the doorman some information. The doorman goes out and trades on it. This is very New York. But rather than handing you know, a $100 bill, you say, here's going to be an impending deal. Go make some money on it. It doesn't cost me anything, but I'm giving it to you with the expectation that you'll, you'll use it for your benefit. So I can either give you money or I could give you the information. So what that has done, in effect, is if the government can show that it is given, the information is given with the expectation to trade, then that really is like giving a gift. If you think the person is going to trade and profit on it, then rather than giving them money, you've engaged in insider trading. So that could potentially expand uh, the analysis here because you have to worry about how close the friendship is. The answer to that question appears to be probably not, although... It's going to take some time for Martoma to get worked out and see how the lower courts deal with this, trial courts, and maybe even the Second Circuit and the other circuits. But it certainly looks like it has uh, made life easier 
for the Justice Department and the SEC in future cases. Yeah, do you think easier than they had it um, even when when Dirks was the prevailing law? Do you think, I mean, so Dirks required the, the person be a friend, a trading friend or relative, but didn't say it had to be a close relationship. Do you think now the relationship is, or the, the scope liability is broader even than, than under Dirks? Is that hard to, hard to know? It's hard to know, but certainly it, there is that potential there because the emphasis in Martoma was the expectation that the mm-hmm. recipient will trade on it. And so you know, if you're talking about, for example, someone giving information to uh, a person at a hedge fund, well, of course, people at hedge funds trade. And so you would be hard-pressed to say that I, I didn't expect the person to trade. Well, then why'd you give it to the person? Now, if you're talking about a family situation, um, it, perhaps it could be a little bit harder, but uh, it could also be easier because why are you giving this information out? Um, that becomes the focus here, and it makes the government's life perhaps a bit easier because you don't have to delve into the relationship as much. Even a, a doorman and a tenant can be sufficient after Martoma to establish the quid pro quo, the Dirks requirement for insider trading. So it could make the government's life easier, at least in some cases. The dissenting judge here worries that the, the life of the government will be made made too easy or the, the scope of liability is a bit um, too hazy or nebulous. What What is her concern? This is a pretty vigorous 40-page dissent here. Right. As, uh, judge Pooler uh, wrote the dissent, and she's saying, you know, essentially you've gotten rid of uh, a requirement that seemed to be, in the Dirks case, of intent to benefit, that you have to give the information intending to receive the benefit in return, and instead it's now become just the expectation of trading, so that she argues that the, 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 ju- the majority in Martoma tinkered too much uh, with the Dirks requirement for tipping um, Her point is that you've made it too easy. Now it has become so broad as to perhaps even be unconstitutionally vague. I I doubt that other courts would go to that uh, position, but it's an issue that's going to have to be fought out both in the Second Circuit and maybe in other circuits. Just how far does this Martoma analysis in light of Solomon, how far does it take the rules against insider trading. That's what will be played out over the next couple of years, I expect, assuming the Martoma case stands. Yeah, get, getting to that, uh, you, you wrote that it's pretty common practice in the Second Circuit for there to, to really not be en banc reviews. Listeners out here in the Ninth Circuit uh, will find that for, and we, we have them pretty commonly, but um, it, it sounds like the panel decisions usually will stand. And and also the fact that we just had a U.S. Supreme Court decision in a pretty similar case seems to suggest um, the, the high court might not be too keen to revisit this issue uh, right right away, right? I think that's right. The, the, the Second Circuit has a tradition against uh, en banc review, unlike the Ninth Circuit and, frankly, the other circuits. And so now with a dissent like Judge Pooler's, that gives a little bit more impetus. But the Second Circuit judges... Part of their tradition is we don't grant en banc review. It, it happens on average less than once a year. Uh, so that doesn't give you much hope. And for the Supreme Court to take it up, the uh, Supreme Court has reviewed a grand total of five insider trading cases since 
1980 to the first one, and it's just not something it takes up very much. Plus, uh, another ground in the Martoma decision was that uh, the government had established that there was a benefit to the tipper, to the doctor who provided the information, and that was his being hired for these consulting meetings. So that's a separate ground on which the uh, majority uh, judges affirm the conviction. The Supreme Court doesn't like to take cases where there is a solid basis to affirm a conviction and then look at another part of the case. They like to steer clear of that. They like clean cases. That might be an argument against having the Supreme Court review here. Okay, maybe just one, one last one, if you can kind of replace yourself in the, the position you formerly held as a, a government attorney trying to, to keep tabs on folks and, and prevent insider tra- trading. Um, would you think this line has been properly calibrated? Does it seem about right? Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on the, the doctrine then as, the, uh, as it stands now? Well, it's, um, it has it, certainly gone in the direction of the government. So if I was still at the SEC, I would... Uh, welcome the decision, but I'm not, and uh, it, it is a prohibition that has developed essentially as a common law crime. Um, there are questions raised as to whether that's a good thing. Do we really want judge-made law? At the same time, we are at the point today where there is uh, real intuitive uh, concern that Wall Street is getting away with things. That is, the privileged traders uh, who can take advantage of the market. And so in that regard, I think it can give the general public perhaps greater confidence that the government is going to continue to crack down on insider trading. And the argument is that that inspires confidence in the market. Whether that's true or not, there's at least a public perception that that's important. And so in that regard, then, it's a, a positive decision. Well, um, I'm sure there will be no shortage of uh, insider trading prosecutions here coming up to, to shape just exactly what this Martoma decision means. Um, but we'll leave it there for now. Professor Peter Henning from Wayne State University, thanks very much for being on the podcast to chat about this case. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Ryan Bounds has yet to get a confirmation hearing before the Senate, and the fact that his home state senators have yet to give their stamps of imprimatur on his nomination has cast just a bit of doubt on that confirmation. But another circuit court nominee has met with the Senate Judiciary Committee, and that's Amy Coney Barrett, Salah professor at Notre Dame. She faced questions from senators on Tuesday, including a few about her devout Catholic faith. Those questions, in particular ones from California Senator Dianne Feinstein, elicited controversy in no small measure of rebuke from news media commentators and school presidents. Many censured Feinstein for imposing what they viewed as a constitutionally verboten religious test for office. Eric Siegel of Georgia State University College of the Law, along with Northwestern Professor Jeffrey Stone, offered his view in a New York Times piece this week and joins us now to chat about it. Professor Siegel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So in the confirmation hearing for Professor Amy Coney Barrett, Seventh Circuit Judge nominee, there was an interchange between California Senator Diane Feinstein and Professor Barrett that's drawn some pretty withering criticism really from all quarters. Uh, Feinstein asked several questions that seemed to express skepticism over Barrett's ability to be a competent and, and fair 
circuit judge, while devoutly practicing Catholic, um, that skepticism ostensibly arose from a law review article that Barrett had co-written while a law student, um, which acknowledges that Catholic judges will find themselves at times, for instance, in death penalty cases, needing to choose between following their faith and following the law. Worth noting that the article concluded by saying that such judges should recuse themselves when that situation arises, not uh, render a decision based on Catholic doctrine instead of legal precedent. Um, in one bit of the exchange, it's been kind of the focus of much of the controversy, Feinstein said, and I'm quoting here, uh, conclusion, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you, and that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for for years in this country, uh, end quote. And if Feinstein wasn't the only one who took this tack, uh, Dick Durbin from Illinois, a Catholic, inquired as to whether Barrett was orthodox. Uh, much of the response to this exchange has been pretty uh, fulminant. Your New York Times article, though, is a bit more temperate. Tell me about the, sort of your position here and how you, how you reached it. There's a part of the question that he did not defend, and that's the use of the word dot. That word has a history kind of in anti-Catholic circles and bigotry, and, and the senator should have used a different word. So I just want to be clear about that. But overall, I, we, Jeff Stone and I believe that the... Uh, the um, reaction to this has been wildly overblown. We have university presidents writing letters. We have very liberal law professors at Harvard. Uh, frankly, I use his book in my class, uh, overreacting to this. And this is where we're coming from. She wrote a very thoughtful article, identifying herself as a devout Catholic, and she has said that many times, and raising the issue, what should devout Catholics do when they have cases and they're judges that trigger their faith? And her answer was, if there's a true conflict, you should recuse yourself. And I have no problem with that. But the example she used, the death penalty, is really very clear. She seems to suggest she has an absolute opposition to the death penalty, and as a judge, she could never oppose uh, it, and therefore she would have to recuse. But many cases arise from the United States federal judges, such as abortion cases, same-sex marriage cases, and all kinds of others, uh, legislative prayer cases that implicate someone's religious beliefs may be short of recusal, but nevertheless, we all know, or we should know, that appellate judges bring to the table a set of life experiences and personal values, politics, faith, upbringing, that affect their decision-making. It is completely fair game for senators to inquire um, from these nominees how will your prior life experiences, how will your personal values, if any, affect your judgment? And that was the sum and substance of Senator Feinstein's inquiries. Now, could she have said them better? Yes. I just want to make one last point. Nominations of federal judges, especially Court of Appeals judges and definitely Supreme Court justices, are notorious for the misperformance of this in terms of saying all kinds of things they shouldn't say, and in terms of being not very well informed because we all know their assistants prepare the questions and the speeches. So this, I don't think Senator Feinstein totally accurately reflected on what um, Amy was saying in her article, but that happens every day. The question is, why did this result in presidents of universities and famous law professors writing op-eds and letters about all this? And my answer to that is because for some reason religion is supposed to be taboo in these confirmation hearings, and it should not be taboo. 
Yeah, you you compare um, asking about someone's faith to um, asking about some some non-religious uh, elements of a person's background. You say it would be fair game for a senator to have asked Ruth Bader Ginsburg about her spending a career litigating kind of one particular kind of case, the gender discrimination cases, and asking if if when she was on the bench and she heard one, whether she'd be able to, to arbitrate it fairly. Uh, so you, you're saying that sort of inquiring into someone's faith, faith isn't all that much different than asking about uh, another aspect of their background that could bear upon judging? Well, when you say faith, it would be inappropriate, I think, for a senator to say, are you a Catholic, are you Jewish, or to say how many times do you go to church on Thursdays, or what kind of religious rituals do you engage in. All of that would be, I find, highly offensive. That's how Feinstein did. What she said is, according to your faith, you have some strongly held personal views. Those you have written, you, the nominee, have written about the relationship between a judge's views like that and judging. I just want to ask you more questions about that. Now, I, I admit Senator Feinstein might not have been quite as, you know, articulate maybe as I just was. So if people want to object to the style of her questioning, we don't take that on. But I don't, I don't think that's why the president of Notre Dame wrote a letter. I don't think that's why the Noah Feldman of Harvard Law School wrote a the late note, the mystery, pop ad for Bloomberg. I think there's a suggestion that religious faith and the values that are held by people of faith should not be something I think that's wrong. One more thing about that. The Constitution makes it very clear there can be no religious test for office. I think it's a great provision. Article 6 is fantastic. And no way was Senator Feinstein saying Catholics shouldn't be judges. What she might have been suggesting was people who hold a certain set of values about women and the role women play in our society and the importance of reproductive rights in that whole kind of equation. People who hold certain views about that maybe shouldn't be judges. And by the way, I agree with that. If the reason those people have those views is because of their faith, I don't care. I don't care why they have those views. I don't. So it's not a religious thing. It's if you believe... No, there are all kinds of people who might say women belong in the home. Why do I think that? Because I'm a Christian. Well, I don't want that person on the court, not because she's a Christian, but because that person holds a view that I find, you know, crazy in 2017. Yeah, one thread from some critiques, for instance, Professor Feldman, that you've referenced makes the argument that if such a question were asked of a nominee from a faith that had sort of historically and regularly been the target of discrimination, or maybe a nominee from a religious group that's of a, represents a smaller minority in this country, asked of a Muslim or a Jewish candidate, that there would be more outrage on, I guess, the, the political left than there has been from this experience. But it sounds like what you're saying is that in any of those events, questions about that would be religious-based as they pertain to a person's ability to judge would, would be fair game. Well, there's two things about that. And I think I have to think more about how it would be phrased you know, to a Muslim or to a Jewish person in the context. But the one big difference, the one reason this is not those hypos, and the why Professor Feldman, who I respect very much, as I say, I use his book, um, he should be more careful about this. But I should say, I know Amy, she's a very nice person. I think she'll be a good judge. She opened the door. I mean, she opened the door wide. I mean, she suggested that if she had, you know, that in a death penalty case, it might be appropriate for her to refuse because of her faith. Well, I'm on the Senate. I'm going to ask more questions. Are you going to refuse in an abortion case? Are you going to refuse in a same-sex marriage case? 
Can you give us some other cases where you think you might not be able to perform the task assigned to you by the Constitution because of your religious faith? All of those questions would be fair. So I would need the context of how someone is asking a Jewish person or a Muslim nominee um, about their faith. Because I think context is very important. Um, one, one other bit of, of Professor Feldman's critique seemed to be that maybe the fact that the, the Supreme Court at, at present comprises five Catholics, including a, a fairly liberal justice, Sonia Sotomayor, and Justice Kennedy, who has sided with uh, the abortion right and, and Casey and wrote the same-judge marriage opinion most recently. Um, I, I think the point he's making here is that there's sort of proof enough that there's already you know, plenty of fine Catholic jurists, and so asking questions about one's Catholic faith is sort of without much Purpose. And she was not saying Catholics shouldn't be judged or doing anything like what she was saying. And, and, and I would ask people, and I, I mentioned this before in other interviews, I, I would ask people to put yourselves in Senator Feinstein's position. Her entire life, she has fought for women's rights. Her entire life, she has fought for reproductive rights. She feels very strongly about these issues. Very strong. Along comes a nominee, and we have every reason to think that this nominee will hold different positions on those questions than Senator Feinstein. So she wants to figure out a way to get that out on the table. Now, there are atheists who are anti-abortion, uh, anti-choice, whatever. Um, and if an atheist holds that view, then you would try to get their views on the table in one direction. But it is Amy who said over and over, I'm a person of devout faith um, and all that. Why wouldn't Senator Feinstein have the right to inquire about this person's views on abortion? I think the Supreme Court is again that she has fought for for her entire life. And, and if she did it a little bit awkwardly, and I think she did, and if she made a mistake by using some language she shouldn't have used. And I'm, I'm not, by the way, I, I'm not a big Diane Feinstein fan. I'm just saying... Put yourself in that position. She is seeing her life work in jeopardy, and she's trying to figure out a way to get at, to get at the nominee's views. Far worse things have happened during nomination processes than this, and presidents of universities didn't write that. You, you, and your, your colleague Jeffrey Stone, you, you acknowledge in your piece that you, your opinion tacks a bit away from what has sort of been the, the majority of, of the reaction to, to this event. Uh, why, why do you think that that yours uh, sort of moderate opinion um, seems to be a, a bit lonely here? That's a great question, and I haven't, to be honest, I haven't given a lot of thought to it. I have a very, you might view cynical, I view realistic idea, uh, hypothesis about this, which is, and I, and I respect this. What I'm about to say, I'm not criticizing. This. So. If I'm, I'm a progressive and I'm a self-identified progressive, if there's something that conservatives say that I agree with, you know, that there's something that the other side is putting forward that I feel, oh, well, I, I think I could be part of that. I go out of my way to do that because in this day and age, in my opinion, it is incredibly important to be more bipartisan, to cooperate more with the other side. I really try to do this. And so I go out of my way to search for conservative law professors who I can join with and, and be a team on just to role model for my students and for everybody else that people with fundamentally different approaches to things can still get along and work out. This was an example like where maybe Noah Feldman you know, and others thought that we can be perceived as you know, balanced and not always partisan and not always supporting our side. And, and so I, I respect that. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, I do it myself. I'm, that, that may be one thing. 
as far as from the other side, from the right, you know, they are very sensitive to two things. They're sensitive to the idea that religion shouldn't play a role in public decision making. And they saw this as a broadside attack on that idea. And then we get a little bit narrower law professors and especially conservative and libertarian law professors and others like to deny the reality that judges decide cases based on their values. And so the only defense of Feinstein here, but I think it's a winning defense, is she's trying to get at the personal values of this nominee. Well, some people want to pretend that those personal values are irrelevant because only the law matters. I find that, I find that that's part of this. And that will uh, want for contentious issues and fights arising from the, uh, the many judicial confirmation hearings ahead. So perhaps we'll, we'll chat again soon. But for now, Eric Siegel, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. James Azadian is a shareholder with Enterprise Council Group ALC in Irvine and chairs the Ninth Circuit Appellate Lawyers Representatives Panel, a group in which Ryan Bounds has worked for several years striving to aid the circuit's judges and litigants and better the court's administration of justice. Joining us now is Mr. Azadian. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. You as the, the chair of the, the Ninth Circuit Appellate Lawyers Representative Panel have had the opportunity to, to be a colleague of Mr. Bounds, who's now, of course, been nominated to replace Dearmond O'Scanlan in the, the Portland posting of the Ninth Circuit, uh, a posting I'm sure Judge O'Scanlan would uh, pretty happily yield to his, his former law clerk. Here's a, a native of Oregon. He's went to school with Stanford and, and Yale for law school. He's worked as a government attorney and White House advisor, um, lately has been an assistant U.S attorney in, in Oregon. Um, his conservative credentials are also strong. He's a Federalist Society member. Um, maybe before getting into some of your experiences with Mr. Bounds, we could spend a, a second on what exactly the Ninth Circuit Appellate Lawyers Representative Panel does. I understand you guys are, are appointed by the, the judges. What uh, What is the group's role? What, uh, what sort of stuff do you do? You know, before I get started, I should just mention that the views and comments that I make are my own and I don't um, portend to speak on behalf of the appellate lawyer representatives uh, at large or the Ninth Circuit Court or any of their judges. So the appellate lawyer representatives, it's a, a group of lawyers, approximately 20 lawyers, that are appointed by the judges of the Ninth Circuit, and they are gathered throughout the circuit. The circuit tries to uh, collect a group of distinguished appellate lawyers that um, they have um, come to trust uh, over the years and whose um, reputations are known to the court. Um, and this is important because the judges are looking for these uh, appellate experts, if you will, to um, advise the court uh, and the judges on issues affecting the judiciary and uh, federal appellate practice. If you, if you look at it this way, it's almost like a group of advisors because the judges um, tend to co correspond with each other the most. Um, and outside the oral argument setting, um, they don't really have an opportunity to engage with members of the bar. And so this is, um, uh, this is the group that they've chosen um, to engage with. And a very important responsibility of the appellate lawyer representatives is to provide uh, and coordinate training um, to uh, lawyers who are arguing before the Ninth Circuit. And we put on different training sessions um, throughout the circuit. 
Um, but another very important part of what appellate lawyer representatives do is they put together uh, the, the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference. They assist the judges in putting that conference together. And that's a conference that is mandated by statute where the circuit judges and their appointed law representatives uh, gather uh, once every year, usually in the summer, to consider the business of the court and the issues that are impacting justice uh, as provided through and by the court. Um, so it is really an important contribution that is um, being made by all of these appellate lawyer representatives. They are unpaid positions. They are completely voluntary. Um, but they do entail a great deal of work and a great deal of thought. And I'm really very proud of all of our appellate lawyer representatives and um, Ryan Bounds in particular for the great contributions that have been made by each of them. Sounds like you guys work uh, pretty intimately within the court and have a pretty um, up-close view and, and some influence on, on how it, it functions. Now, of course, Mr. Bounds nominated to sit upon the court. Um, could you give me some sense of what your experiences with him over the past few years working on the panel have, have been like? You know, Ryan has um, a great deal of insights to offer. He's one of those um, folks that has uh, a vast array of experience. Uh, having worked on environmental law cases, having worked in criminal uh, prosecutions, having handled um, trial court matters as well as appellate matters. So he brings to the table a broad range of experience that does impact any of the items that the circuit judges have asked us to look into. Um, I will give you a recent example. Um, at the Ninth Circuit Judicial Conference, which we just held in July in San Francisco, Ryan was an important, uh, even though he wouldn't say that he was uh, any different from any of the other contributors, uh, you know, he was a very important part of the presentation and the recommendations that the appellate lawyer representatives made to the circuit judges. Ryan worked very hard to develop the data and the presentation um, to the circuit judges in recommending that the uh, judges consider um, allowing greater access to the appellate process and to the appellate courtroom in a real way for the underrepresented uh, litigants and for those that are unrepresented. Uh, what I mean to say is these are the folks that can't really afford lawyers, or if they can't afford lawyers, the lawyers themselves are not able to find the means to be able to completely be present in all facets of the appellate process, especially oral argument. And so oftentimes they won't appear or they'll just say, you know, we waive oral argument. Oral argument allows the litigant to have his or her or its day in court. And when you don't have uh, the lawyer being able to be there because of cost reasons usually, uh, because the client can't afford it, or because the client herself or himself um, cannot afford to be there, then that the ALRs and Ryan felt that that is a breakdown in the administration of justice. They should have their day in court, and we should find ways to make it um, easier on them to be able to participate in the, in the judicial administration and the resolution of their case. So Ryan's recommendation and the one that we all had um, supported and endorsed as ALRs was that we have um, 
greater access to the courtroom through video teleconferencing. And when we looked into the matter and we started to work with court personnel, we found that this is in fact something that's doable and it is something that can be done and is being done um, on select bases uh, in the Ninth Circuit. For example, um, as Ryan pointed out, judges are appearing um, remotely through video teleconference to participate on the bench in some of these cases. So if the judges are doing it, why should we not be able to provide it for those who do not have the means to be able to attend oral argument? Um, so that's just kind of a um, recent example of the work uh, that uh, Ryan has done and the contributions he's made. That's a, an, an issue of some salience. Uh, I know Keene Court appellate court watchers will will know that uh, Judge Richard Posner uh, re- retired just a couple of weeks ago and cited as one of the reasons the, his his circuits uh, what he uses sort of an unresponsiveness or a lack of solicitude to uh, to unrepresented litigants and, and problems with court access. You know, it was refreshing to hear that um, from a, a jurist as no, notable as uh, Judge Posner. I believe that has been a um, value of his that has uh, developed over time. Um, that's not to suggest that he never had that value to start with, but I think as his experience in judging progressed over time, he started to see the importance um, of uh, inclusion of the underrepresented or the unrepresented in the appellate process and making sure that opportunities are made more available to them uh, because it is harder for them. There are barriers to access. And, um, you know, that, that was the term that uh, Ryan kept using during his presentation was, you know, let's figure out ways to remove or at least lower some of these barriers to accessing justice in the Ninth Circuit. Now, in, in certain instances, uh, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee will have the opportunity to kind of review a judicial nominee's previous record as, as a judge. Uh, that's frequently the case when talking about Supreme Court nominees, sometimes the case with circuit judges here. Of course, um, Ryan Bowers will be joining the judiciary. Uh, for the first time, he's been an attorney, um, so it's hard to get get a f- sort of a full sense of what his uh, approach to, to judging might be like, uh, whether he you know, would have a more strict approach, uh, would feel um, there's more of a role for, for courts to uh, interpret um, the law and say what it is. Uh, in your opinion, do you have, do you have a sense what um, you might say his, uh, his approach to the law might be uh, as a judge? You know, uh, Brian, I don't think that anyone can really answer that question, whether it comes to Ryan or anybody else. And um, that's not, you know, kind of a way of skirting the question. Uh, I really truly believe that. Take any example. Take Circuit Judge Susan Graber on the Ninth Circuit, who was previously on the Oregon Supreme Court. If you were to look at her state court jurisprudence prior to coming onto the Ninth Circuit, I think it would you would find um, some parallels, but more often than not, you would find that there aren't parallels. Uh, that's not to suggest that they go different directions. But I think that um, it's a process. I think it's an evolutionary process. And um, it is hard to say that you can pinpoint um, any kind of judicial philosophy or anything along those lines based on that kind of previous experience. Um, you know, uh, President Nixon saw that time and time again when he appointed folks to the courts, and they turned out to be uh, what he considered to be his greatest uh, defoes. You know, ideologically, 
Um, if one is looking to one's approach to judging, um, it's going to be very hard uh, divine anything of real credibility or value. Um, what I think instead, you know, should be looked at, um, and what I look at when I'm uh, when I've been asked to comment on um, nominees and judges, and when uh, my input has been solicited, I think the quality of that person are the most important because I think they're the most telling in terms of their ability to judge and their approach, their ultimate approach to the law. And that is temperament, uh, intellect, uh, judgment, their dedication and work ethic, very important. Um, collegiality, their uh, ability to be affable, genuinely affable, their, their non-social awkwardness. I think that one criticism that you know many folks have of the um, appellate bench and fairly the appellate bar is these are not the most socially you know <laughs> gregarious people. Uh, I think the criticisms that I've heard are they're a little more reserved or they're a little more nerdy. They're uh, not they, they don't relate well in their communication style with people. Um, there seems to be a bit of a um, you know a, a bit of a wall up. Um, so I think. We, you know, presidents, you know, when they're looking to a point, I think it is important that they look at people who are affable, who can relate um, to the litigants and to their communities, to the people that they will be ultimately sitting in judgment of. Um, they, you know, I think the ideal judge has to be an educator, particularly a circuit judge has to be an educator, has to be interested in educating not simply the lawyer's and the parties that are appearing before her or him, but also the community. You know, uh, the civic orientedness of the candidate uh, needs to be considered. Justice O'Connor, um, even before her um, taking senior status and retiring from the court, and um, certainly after, has done so much to increase the civic awareness of an independent judiciary. And, um, you know, it's she will be remembered. She'll be remembered for a lot of things. But I certainly believe that she history will tell the story of Justice O'Connor as one who really championed uh, the general civic awareness of uh, the independent judiciary among school children and among high school students and you know secondary school students, uh, college, university, and beyond. Um, you know, so what contributions will this person make to the general education and? Um, you know, making a difference in the community as a judge. Um, I think it's important that the judge not be conclusory driven, meaning not arrive with any preset agenda, uh, or, you know, just look at their own political ideology as a basis for developing their judicial philosophy. I think these are two separate things. I, I mean, I worked for, um, for a judge who was uh, a, a trial judge, Judge Ricardo Urbina in Washington, D.C., on uh, the U.S. District Court, who was President Ronald Reagan's very first judicial appointee in the country, um, very first. And he sat on the same court as uh, future um, Attorney General Eric Holder. And um, I think it would have been uh, an incredibly incorrect you know, understanding to say that Judge Urbina, uh, because he was a Reagan appointee, that his personal politics 
transferred over to his judicial uh, philosophy or his judicial approach. Uh, many people, when they read Judge Urbina's decisions, um, found them to be conservative. Um, he would also say half the time they found me to be too liberal. <laughs> he said, so I guess if I'm um, offending both sides of the aisle, he said, I guess I'm doing my job right. <laughs> and I think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, I remember uh, it was Judge Edwards on the D.C. Circuit when I first started clerking who said to us law clerks, he said, um, you know, uh, something I tell all new judges is, um, now you've gotten here, you're a judge. Be re ready to rule against the people who brought you here, including the President of the United States. And I think there's great value to those words. Um, that, that is the calling of an independent judiciary, of an independent judge. Are they willing to eschew all of the biases and prejudices that are human? You know, I, I, I listen to my kids. You listen to your family. We have a predisposition, in a sense, to listen to the people who care for us and who have brought us to these places of prominence in our profession. But are you as a judge willing to cast all those aside and to honor and follow the law, even if it means that your ruling will offend the very people who you care for? That's, I think, what we're looking for, that kind of non-conclusoriness, that open-mindedness and that principled approach. And I believe Ryan, um, on each of these points, it should be commended um, because, you know, having worked with him now and studied him, I can say that, well, you know, it would be a fool's errand to say what his judicial philosophy will be based on his background or his political ideology. Um, I think in each of these areas, he scores exceptionally well. Among those criteria, the last one that you dwelled on is perhaps the most salient. People are often prone to be cynical about whether or not it is the case that judges do bring an open mind and withhold in their mind the, the decision they want to get to until they've had a full airing of, of the facts and heard the parties. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, obviously, as you said, presidents, and it's no, no secret, they appoint judges because they want certain types of cases or they want judges to exhibit a particular ideology to the extent that they can. Um, but it sounds like you, you do feel confident that, that Ryan Bounds would have that, that ability to be not conclusory driven to bring an, an open mind and be um, someone who would consider both sides of, of any issue. I do. What I've seen in Ryan is what I value in the, the best jurists in our country, which is they listen more than they speak. They're interested, genuinely interested in listening to the uh, consumers before them, to the consumers of the court, to the, the folks in the room. They believe, you can tell they believe that they have knowledge to gain, important knowledge to gain just by listening to the people before them. And you and I both know that most lawyers love to talk more than they like to listen. And I think that's a rare quality. I think that's the reason why you know, Ryan, I think, defies expectations. I think it's hard to uh, pigeonhole him and say, oh, you know, he's a conservative, so he's going to naturally be a conservative judge or he's going to entertain a conservative philosophy. Uh, again, I think it's a fool's errand to do that because if you think about it, if, if the natural extension of that is then, oh, then he must, you know, be appointed by a bunch of conservatives, you know, to every position he's ever had. Mm -hmm. Well, look, he was appointed as an ALR 
by Chief Judge Sidney Thomas of the Ninth Circuit, who was a President Clinton appointee. And I don't think there are many people who would say that he would be categorized as a conservative jurist. I think most court watchers and observers who've studied uh, Chief Judge Thomas's work would probably label him as having more of a progressive judicial philosophy uh, or a non-restraintist model of philosophy. So there's more to Ryan than simply these labels. You know, Chief Judge Thomas uh, appointed him to this position. And it, it, it wasn't Alex Kaczynski or, you know, a Republican-appointed uh, judge. Um, and I think that's very telling. That means that Ryan um, can cross the divide and can win the affections and the admiration and the, rep- and the reputation from, from folks on both sides of the aisle. That's super important for a judge because especially on the Ninth Circuit, you want to have a judge who's collegial, someone who can build consensus, somebody who can uh, persuade uh, with her or his friendliness um, and ability to be professional um, beyond simply their, you know, unmatched intellect. Um, intellect alone, without good judgment and without affability, in my opinion, is, uh, you know, is a weapon in the hands of someone who doesn't know how to use it effectively. I think all of these things have to come together. Intelligence simply is not enough, although it's the starting point, certainly. Uh, you know, I would also just say that I've read that Ryan is a member of the Federalist Society, um, but what I haven't read is that he's also a member of the American Constitution Society, the ACS. And, um, you know, the, Ameri- the, the ACS was founded as a counterweight to the Federalist Society, and he is a, an active member of that organization. Um, you know, uh, he attends those meetings regularly. You know, another thing that I think folks don't say um, about the Federalist Society is that the folks like uh, Ninth Circuit Judge Steve Reinhardt is, um, an, it has been labeled an expert of the Federalist Society, a part of that organization, a frequent contributor and um, attendee. Um, at federal society meetings. Um, you know, and certainly nobody would claim that, uh, Judge Reinhardt, um, you know, is in the category of being a conservative jurist. Uh, just the opposite. So I, I think that, um, you know, these stereotypes or labels are very misleading. Um, you know, when, when it comes to candidates, I think it would be a shortcut in a sense to look at those things and to assume that this person is going to be of that designer of that fabric just simply because they, uh, you know, attend meetings or are members uh, of a particular organization. Um, so I, I see that Ryan um, is looking at all viewpoints. You know, uh, not many Federal Society members are also members of the ACS. But the fact that he is, I think, speaks volumes about his interest in listening more than speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, developing all views and not having those conclusory laden approaches. Um, you know, I think another important aspect, Brian, if I may, um, you know, I remember when his nomination was first made, uh, there were so many articles about Ryan and the nomination itself. And I remember reading in, in one article uh, coming out of Oregon that um, there were various public defenders um, that had come out in support of Ryan. And um, I was able to look at that time, and I was able to find the letter 
that they had written to uh, Ryan's home state senators, uh, Senators Wyden and uh, Merkley. And in fact, 14 public defenders and criminal bar uh, defense members, um, folks that Ryan has opposed in court, his opposing counsel, uh, wrote to uh, the senators and said, this is one of the most exceptionally well-qualified people that could be appointed to the Ninth Circuit and grab him. Uh, you know, if he wants this position, grab him. You can do no better than him. I believe that you need to look at your opponents, at the opponents of the nominee in court to get a sense as to their ability to be fair, their demonstrated uh, and proven ability to listen and to be civil and to, in fact, be professional and collegial and really a joy to work with. I think that is an important measure of um, predictability and temperament of a judge. Yeah, that that's a, a good segue um, mentioning the Senate, the senators from Oregon, um, to get into the, the confirmation process that now lays ahead. Both Jeff Merkley and Ron Wyden, Democrats from Oregon, have indicated to the, the Judiciary Committee that they won't return the the blue slip, as it's called, uh, since they're impremature on on the selection. They're they're okay, and and historically, this Senate norm has when blue slips are not returned, has, has kept judicial nominees from proceeding through the confirmation process, essentially nullified nominations. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has indicated his intent to do away with this norm. Um, it is one that survived the, the Obama years, though um, it certainly was used to, to full effect by a lot of home state senators in red states to, to prevent some Obama appointees. Part of the reason the federal courts are, have so many vacancies to fill. Do you think the blue suppressors will fall by the wayside? It will become, I think Mitch McConnell will like it to become um, purely advisory, have no real effect. Um, in, in reality, it doesn't have any effect except that it's been a norm. Um, what is it? What has been its role, and do you think it will uh, will survive uh, Ryan Bounds nomination? Well, you know, I think um, to answer your first uh, as the first part of your question, generally, I think it really does depend on um, you know who's uh, ultimately in the majority um, in the Senate at any given point, um, and even then, whoever is in the ultimately in the majority, it depends on the circumstances that come before uh, the Senate. I really think that no matter which party is in control of the Senate, um, you have an opportunity to be able to um, get the insight of those who are on the ground and are closest to the nominee, at least proximity-wise, closest to the nominee, and learn from them, learn what their feelings are on the candidate. Um, you know, I think uh, we would all agree. Um, you know, I don't think there's any argument on this point that the blue slip process has, throughout history, at times, been abused. And um, throughout history, at times, it has been used exceptionally well. The uh, Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, uh, I was reading an article not too long ago, had um, recommended that the blue slip process be redesigned completely uh, because it doesn't appear to call for the actual uh, informational insight of the home state senators. What most people don't realize is the blue slip process isn't just for judicial nominees. It's also for um, executive um, agency nominees, like, for example, um, 
U.S. attorneys. Um, they also, um, the home state senators are sent blue slips for those uh, candidates. Also for the marshals, for the marshal service in each particular uh, state and district uh, throughout the country, the home state senators are sent a blue slip for the U.S. marshals. And, and there's a list of, uh, of, of various positions uh, for the blue slip process. Um, you know, they suggested um, follow-up questions. Cause have you ever actually seen a blue slip, Brian? Have you seen what it looks like? I have not. I imagine that it's the color blue is all I can guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's developed that uh, reputation because uh, of the color blue. And at times it has been blue and at times it hasn't. Hmm. Um, I haven't seen one recently to tell you what color it actually holds. But um, the, the blue slip, I think, dates all the way back to 1917. So we are in the 100th year of the blue slip. Actually, all it is is a couple of lines. And it says, you know, this person um, is... Uh, you know, has been nominated. And a lot of people think that it actually comes to the White House. It doesn't. It comes from the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee sends the blue slip to the home state senators of that particular nominee, whether it's for judge or for U.S. attorney or for marshal or whatever the case might be. And then the home state senators have the uh, prerogative to um, return the blue slip, um, you know, stating simply that they support the candidate or uh, that they don't support the candidate uh, is the second option. The third is not to return it at all. And, um, you know, there isn't much to be gathered by way of the inquiry made um, on that blue slip. Do you support this candidate? You know, we'd like to know your views. There, According to the Brennan Center, there should be uh, more specific inquiries, such as if you... Um, do not approve of this candidate. Please tell us why. Can you give specific examples of, um, you know, the lack of, you know, demonstration of good temperament uh, of this individual? Or can you give some examples of how they are not well regarded in your community? You know, uh, digging a little deeper so that it's, it's shown that this is not a politically guided, so much politically guided process of course, it is a politically guided process, but what I mean to say is that it's not presumptively, you know, political, that just because this person is being nominated by an opposing party, then I am just going to not, not return a blue slip, or I'm going to say that the person's not qualified, or I don't find them fit. Um, I think there needs to be more to the blue slip process. Now, in Ryan's case, to answer your question uh, as to Ryan, um, what I've read most recently is that the, his home state centers have not returned the blue slip yet. And what they're saying, and what I've read them saying um, in the press, is that their only objection to Ryan's nomination is that they haven't fully vetted him yet to confirm that he's of the caliber and temperament befitting the court. And I, I think what the message is, it's not about Ryan. If you read what they're saying, they're not saying that Ryan's not qualified. They're not saying that Ryan is not going to make a great judge. What they're saying is that they feel that they're not being consulted by the White House and that they want to be consulted and they are offended by the, the lack of consultation um, and that kind of senatorial courtesy that, that has historically been extended over the years, or I would suggest you selectively extended over the years. Um, 
And so that is their objection. I don't see it as an objection to Ryan. I don't think anyone can read it as an objection to Ryan. I think it's an objection to um, the White House's lack of, you know, consultation and collaboration. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, we could argue whether that's an appropriate way of utilizing the blue slip, you know, and whether that's going to end up um, causing delay uh, in the Senate in terms of the Senate Judiciary Committee's consideration of Ryan and voting Ryan out of the committee onto the floor for a vote. Um, you know, I think that the speculation can go both ways on that. But, um, you know, I, I think that it's hard. Uh, you know, uh, certainly senators can come out and rather than say, well, our objection is that we haven't been consulted, they can say more. They can say, oh, you know, and we don't think that he, uh, you know, is fitting for the court and we don't think that he's well qualified. We don't uh, regard him as, you know, you know, highly uh, in our in our legal community, uh, people in the community don't regard him highly. They can say any of those things. None of those criticisms have been made. In fact, no criticisms have been made of Ryan by his own state senators. You know, and I'm not surprised. Um, you know, this is a gentleman who went through the public school system in uh, Hermiston, Oregon. You know, a really small town. I mean, it's a small place, and he's the product of the son of a a high school teacher, you know, um, his mom. And, um, you know, he went to this, to that high school and graduated valedictorian. Um, he has been a member of, you know, a, a, a vital member of that community, um, since he was young. You know, this is someone who's well regarded in the community. Even the U.S. attorney, um, there in Portland, Billy Williams, he, um, you know, he was a holdover from the Obama administration. He's still the U.S. attorney. And um, as a holdover, he was recently appointed by the chief district judge um, uh, to uh, continue in his role as U.S. attorney. He wrote in favor of Ryan. So this is an incredible talent, somebody who I regard very highly, who's very professional and who I want to see on the Ninth Circuit. The voices that we're hearing come out in support of Ryan aren't simply the voices you might expect on the conservative side of the docket. And I think those are the ones that we need to be paying attention to as well. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. It seems it seems unavoidable that uh, inter-party rancor can, can come to sort of steal the show and, and do more to determine the fate of judicial nominations than, than the qualifications of the, the nominee, him or herself. Fair to say that was the case with Merrick Garland. And, and as you describe it, it sounds like another episode of the same here with Ryan Bounds. But um, it sounds like you feel fairly confident that at the end of the day, Ryan Browns will uh, end up on, on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, you know, let, let me put it to you this way. If Ryan cannot pass muster um, through this nomination process, I, I will have a very heavy heart and a very, uh, and I will lament um, the, the process that I thought we had. Um, if he can't get through, I don't know that there's hope for anybody. You know, especially given his diversity of experience, both as a civil practitioner and someone with environmental law experience. This is um, a very important asset to the Ninth Circuit. I mean, and when you look at our Ninth Circuit judges, barely anyone of any of the circuit judges have had environmental law experience. Um, many of the judges specifically hire law clerks who have had environmental law experience so that they can 
you know, rub off on the, their judges so that they can learn, the judges can learn from them and be able to approach the environmental law cases, which is a very large part of the Ninth Circuit's docket. Ryan brings that diversity, that, that you know, niche um, understanding of law to um, to, to the to the bench, and I think that's that's a point that has not yet, I think, been noticed with respect to Ryan, and I and I hope that it will come out more and more as we as as the nomination process continues. Um, another, I think, important aspect that needs to be uh, touched on is um, you know Ryan, who is a right now currently a prosecutor, uh, a federal prosecutor, he. Um, I think he's gone out of his way to uh, volunteer um, his time and his representation to represent foster children. He currently has an active foster care uh, docket where he has been appointed by the um, state court um, in Oregon to represent foster children, uh, I think under the ages of nine. Um, you know, and he's been appointed by the state judges um, to do that, to, to be the voice for these children. And he meets regularly with these um, youth, you know, the, that are under his domain, to be able to represent to the court what is in those uh, foster children's best interests. And, um, you know, I, I haven't seen that story yet told of Ryan, and I hope I will. I hope we all will, because it shows the diversity of experience that he has that he's not simply someone who's prosecuting crimes. You know, yeah. he's somebody who's had a rich experience in civil practice, in civil litigation, in the dependency foster care system, in, um, in, in, in immigration work, in, you know, really environmental law. So, uh, you know, yeah, I, I think I'd say he certainly has my vote. But you know what? The Senate hasn't asked me, so I guess I don't. <laughs> have a vote. <laughs> sure. uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there and certainly stay tuned to the impending nomination process for Ryan Bounds. For now, James Azadian, shareholder with the Enterprise Council Group ALC and chair of the Ninth Circuit Appellate Lawyers Representative Panel. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brian. With that, our show for September 15th, 2017, is complete. Thanks again to all of my guests and to you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.